Yeah. Well, um, I'm really excited to be here with Tim, uh, Tim O'Reilly, and to have uh, an important conversation um, about uh, technology and technology's impact yeah. on humanity. Yeah. Um, as mentioned briefly in the intro, um, I'm James Slavitt. I'm a partner at Greylock, which is a venture capital firm. Um, I'm on the board of companies like uh, GoFundMe um, and Redfin uh, and Grand Rounds. Um, and I'm also on the board of uh, Fast Forward. Um, and Tim uh, is someone who has been, uh, in addition to starting and running uh, O'Reilly Media and his work in venture capital, has also been on the board uh, of Code for America. Uh, and is someone who's been really prescient um, about technology and the future of technology um, on issues like uh, just kind of seeing the, the future of open source, the future of the web. And over the last couple of years, uh, Tim has been, uh, has been talking uh, and writing uh, and speaking about this impact of technology um, on society, including recently writing a, a book uh, called WTF. Yeah. It's important when you write a book to have a, a title that people will take notice of. So yeah, WTF. but it, it's kind of funny because the backstory uh, on uh, the title is, of course, it meant what you thought it meant. Uh, I had written a piece online called The WTF Economy about all this shit that seemed to be coming down that were like, WTF, you know, um, and uh, but I, I, I gave a talk for President Obama's uh, Frontiers Conference. It was a, a conference on AI and society, which was sort of the la one of the last public events they did. And I was sort of his warm-up speaker, and I, I wanted to, you know, use WTF in my uh, talk. And White House comms said, no, you can't do that. I said, oh, but it stands for what's the future. <laughs> <laughs> and so the subtitle of the book became what's the future and why it's up to us. Um, the up to us, of course, being the, the central point uh, to which I, I actually owe that best part of the title to my wife, Jennifer Palka, the um, founder and executive director of uh, Code for America. So, so let's talk more about, uh, about WTF. Yeah. Um, it'd be great to start like big picture, yeah. your view on kind of the impact of tech on society, maybe the adverse impact, the yeah. risk. Let's, let's start there. Well, the, the, the core of the book is this notion that AI is not something that's happening in the future. You know, we, we talk about AI as this sort of independent intelligence, when in fact, uh, there's a, a kind of AI, I call it, um, um, you, know, uh, you know, compound AI or whatever, it, where it's basically humans plus machines in these new complex uh, superorganisms. You know, so if you think about Google, for example, there's all these AI algorithms, uh, big data algorithms, but we are actually part of the system. Uh, Google is harnessing our intelligence. You know, Facebook is also this, you know, giant feedback mechanism which is binding billions of human beings uh, into this real-time superintelligence. And so I start to explore what does it mean when you have an algorithmic management function for these compound organisms of humans and machines. And one of the things that you learn is that Google, Facebook, and so on have what you can think of as a master optimization function. So Google, for many, many years, was relentlessly optimizing for search relevance. So you search for something, and the best test of that was that you, you went away apparently satisfied. Uh, Facebook, on the other hand, was trying to optimize for more and more engagement, YouTube also. You know, how do we get more people spend more and more time? And that algorithm clearly went awry, you know, because it started showing people more and more divisive contact 
because that turned out to be uh, the most engaging content. And so the idea then is that when we build these systems, they have this uh, master algorithm that's guiding them. And it can go wrong. So then I, I kind of posit, well, what's the master algorithm of our financial markets? Because they also are one of these great collective intelligence uh, compound AIs. And the master algorithm is shareholder value. That is, reward shareholders. And just like Facebook said, get more uh, you know, uh, engagement and thought it would be a good thing, the people who designed this system said, oh, reward shareholders, that will be a good thing. But it led us to the opioid crisis. It led us to all kinds of user hostile behavior, the future of work in which people are a cost to be eliminated. So we're building Skynet. And so in many ways, the point of the book is, uh, you know, we need to rewrite the rules of the master algorithm of our society. And the core of that rewrite is we need to be optimizing for people rather than optimizing for this proxy measure that is you know, corporate profits, uh, which uh, you know, everybody thought, oh, well, that will actually make society as a whole wealthier. Now, there's still a lot of debate on that subject, but I think we can do better because the magic of AI is that it lets us take more and more factors into account. Uh, you know, if you look at Google search, hundreds of factors to get better and better results. And so a lot of what I'm focused on is how do we use this new technology to build better results for people, for society? So thank you. So building on that, if you look at large companies, large tech companies, there may yeah. be some folks in the audience who work for yeah. Google or Amazon or Facebook. Are there ex specific examples of things that those companies have actually done well in this regard, yeah. or are there particular missteps that we can yeah. learn from? Well, I think the, the thing that I, in many ways, admire most is the, the original Google insight that you could run two parallel markets. You know, if you think about it, what an incredible uh, innovation Google search was. A market connecting billions of people, information providers, information uh, consumers, in which money was not a factor at all. You know, this is, this is a future economy of amazing uh, dimension where there are hundreds of factors of which price was none, none of them. You know, and the, uh, price, price signaling has always been thought of as the, the, con, you know, the coordinating factor of, quote, the invisible hand. And Google found all these other factors and they ran a sidecar market that was a price market uh, of, uh, of advertising, which used other signals. So that's a brilliant insight. And I think, unfortunately, on mobile, uh, because there's less real estate, they've ended up putting, smashing those two markets back together, and I think it's leading to a decline in the, you know, Google's don't be evil. They're actually rewarding themselves more and more at the expense of their ecosystem. Uh, and that's why I'm worried with Amazon as well, which was also, I think, very good at putting users first and, and managing this marketplace algorithmically, but now they're starting to get into an advertising business and maybe having the same problems. Uh, I think in terms of Facebook, I think they, they're taking way more heat than they should for the industry. Uh, I, you know, I think clearly uh, move fast and break things went on way too long and they broke a lot of things. Uh, but hey, uh, if you look at so many of the big companies in our society that are still you know, quietly breaking things and hoping that nobody notices, and then Facebook in the crosshairs, uh, uh, you know, from my own experience talking with them, you know, working like hell to try to fix the things that, as they come to understand them more deeply. Yeah, I don't think they're perfect, but you know, when I, I look, say, 
you know, YouTube, the, you know, Facebook is doing a heck of a lot more than YouTube appears to, uh, for example, on the, and, uh, and nobody's, you know, calling Susan Wojcicki in front of Congress. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a bunch of stuff on Twitter on that in the last yeah, couple yeah, of days. Yeah, that's just starting to, you know, come out. <laughs> so, uh, just speaking of moving fast and breaking things, um, you know, uh, I know that you and uh, my partner, Reid Hoffman, had some good back and forth around, uh, around blitz scaling um, and sort of the yeah. culture and philosophy of, of rapidly scaling up startups and the, you know, and the trade-offs yeah. therein. Um, you know, Lyft went public in the last week. Um, it's just a, it's a timely subject. Could you share more of your perspective, either from the entrepreneur or the yeah. investor, on, on the trade-offs? You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of torn because I think Reid is absolutely right that blitzscaling is this very powerful technique. And this, of course, is you pour in a lot of, uh, you know, potentially a lot of money uh, into a company to try to do something that would take a long time to grow organically. And, uh, you know, Lyft and, and Uber are great examples of this, you know, trying to build this huge market ahead of actual market demand. You know, they're basically subsidizing, you know, passengers uh, in order to grow the market and hope, hope that it reaches sort of this critical mass, this critical ignition. The jury's still out. The, the thing that I disagreed with in Reed's book is, you know, blitzscaling can be a win for investors who get to bail when the company goes public and the public will discover later whether or not it was a real business or not. And I think that that's uh, um, you know, one of my complaints. The other complaint is that it, it's encouraged investors to be looking for these super wins. You know, and the odds of getting a Lyft or an Uber are very small. And there's a lot of companies that it's like the whole Silicon Valley go big or go home, where go big used to be, hey, maybe a $100 million exit is good. And now it's like if it's not multiple billions, you, know, you might as well not bother trying, is part of what's wrong with our society, where we're basically going, well, it only matters that we have a lot of, that we have some really big winners. And it doesn't matter as much that we have uh, smaller ongoing businesses. And so, the way I think about it is there are blitzscaling opportunities to build things to, to super scale. And those people who get, get to super scale have a responsibility to be a platform for smaller businesses. Uh, and, and they really need to be held to account to be enabling those businesses and helping the economy as a whole to flourish. Mm. By the way, one other thing on blitzscaling, you know, one of the examples I give in, in my, my article is uh, a nonprofit example, which is the work that we're doing at Code for America on clearing um, criminal records. You know, there's been various initiatives to turn things from uh, felonies into misdemeanors, and there was no provision made by the government for how are we going to actually clear those records? And so, you know, we're basically, you know, using philanthropic blitz scaling uh, to basically automate the clearing of those records. Uh, and I think that's a, a kind of interesting you know, case where I'm like totally in agreement. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with getting rich. It has to do with actually freeing you know, potentially millions of people from a, an undue burden on their, cool. uh, on their lives. I want to riff on two things you were yeah. just talking about. So one is uh, about just robotics, AI, automation, you know, the workforce, yeah. un unemployment, training. Could yeah. you give more perspective on, on that topic? Well, there's two ways to think about automation. And the first you know, goes back to this idea of the master algorithm of our society gone wrong. And that is, if your goal is to optimize for profits, then one of the things you do with automation is get rid of people. 
right? And that's how it's been framed for our society. You know, this is a technology for eliminating people. And they go, no, no, no. It's really a technology for doing things that used to be impossible. And, you know, uh, if you think about the marvels of the modern world, uh, so many of them came from using technology to expand the range of what people could work on and what we could do for each other. And we need to reframe uh, this whole AI debate that way. Because I look around and I go, are we really done with all of the, the problems of the world? I don't think so. And so when I see somebody like uh, uh, Carla Gomez at the Institute for Computational Sustainability saying, oh yeah, we're working with the power companies uh, in Brazil uh, to take more factors into account. This is that, what I said about Google. You know, like we're looking not just at the, the cost of their dams, but how many species will be impacted, how many people will be impacted. And, and you can do this sort of meta-economic analysis that actually has better results. I go, that's AI doing something you couldn't do before. When we're doing this automatic record clearance work at AI, you know, we're replacing, yeah, yeah, we're replacing paralegals by some definition of replacing, but the basic thing was this job was not being done because everybody said it's too expensive. You know, if, if you're going to basically have a bunch of paralegals, as San Francisco was trying to do, you know, download the files, fill out the paperwork for people, you know, and it goes to a multi-million dollar, multi-year effort, when in fact all they needed was, was some programmers to basically bulk download the stuff, make a bunch of changes in the database, automatically generate the, 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 the stuff for the courts, and spend a lot of time working with people and actually eventually automate the submission to the courts and, and, and the approval. You know, it's really what we do at Code for America is very little technology and a lot of process engineering, discovering what's wrong with the systems we build, you know, that we have built, and go, how would we change these with technology? And I go, we could be doing that throughout our society. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also this kind of plays into the whole discussion of UBI. And I think m much more importantly, I think we have a real opportunity uh, to rethink not just the social safety net, but really how do we fund the creative economy? Mm. I think uh, uh, there's an enormous opportunity uh, to actually rethink what we value in society. Uh, you know, because if you think about it, let's say the, the machines, you know, AI and automation could make our companies way more profitable. And we weren't saying our optimization function is corporate profits. We'd say, oh, we can actually afford to pay people more. Oh, we can actually afford to reduce people's working hours. We can actually afford to have more generous benefits like childcare or elder care. Uh, you know, or we can just do that as, as Kai-Fu Lee, the Chinese AI investor in his book, AI Superpowers, recommends. You just tax the robots and then you create what he calls a social investment stipend to fund the caring economy, to fund people work investing in their communities. You know, and you kind of go, we have this incredible opportunity today because of technology, because of this efficiency, to, to start going, whoa, wow, with these new capabilities, how could we make a better society? So uh, we're going to open it up to questions soon. So if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand. Uh, the the, the um, mic will come to you, and I'll be on the lookout for you. I have uh, dozens more questions and plenty of material, so if you don't ask questions, we'll, we'll uh, handle it. But uh, again, feel free to raise your hand yep. if, if you have a question um, for Tim. I see one back there. So. Um, Maybe the mic can go over there. I'll maybe ask you one question in advance. Sure. Um, so um, 
there are entrepreneurs in, in the audience here who um, are kind of building the next Code for America or Donors Choose or Kiva, yeah. and that's part of the mission yeah. of, of Fast Forward. So you touched on it a little bit, but as someone who's been on the, on the board of that organization and also is yeah. married to the, the leader of the organization, are there any other just insights or lessons in terms of what's worked there? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, probably the, the uh, biggest impact and the uh, biggest lesson is that government is a way to get to scale that doesn't get enough credit in our society. We've spent decades ragging on government and, and, and you know, Jen likes to point out that uh, you know, if you look at all of the charitable spending on the social safety net, for example, uh, it, you know, uh, it, it's basically a tenth of what the government spends on those same issues. Mm -hmm. So if you could make government only 10% more efficient in delivering those services, you've actually doubled all charitable spending. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the work, for example, we do, we built a, a, an alternate interface to food stamps, uh, the application, and uh, you know, you know, we, we, we basically, we built it. Uh, that's the other thing that I think was one of Jen's brilliant hacks on, uh, on government is like you use charitable funding to build something without permission, which is this, the, the, the one thing that, that Silicon Valley really gets right is you don't have to have permission to innovate and you can disrupt some big established company. But it's never been easy to disrupt government mm -hmm. because government controls the rules, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, by basically building something with philanthropic dollars, uh, you know, like we literally built an alternate interface to this terribly broken application for food stamps in originally in San Francisco. It spread organically because it was open source to 12 other counties. The state then noticed, oh, how do we get more of this? And we said, well, we can expand it. It turns out that the, the, this three different consortia of food stamp systems in California. We said, you know, we need some funding. And they said, oh, we can use our outreach funding for signing people up. So we then we, uh, all of a sudden we're getting government funding for this thing that we built philanthropically. Mm -hmm. Now we have funding from CZI to, to actually do pilots in five other states for integrated benefits applications, uh, you know, which presumably will eventually be funded by government. And that's a, an incredible hack. If you can build it without permission, you can focus on what's good for the users as opposed to how, how you're just sort of replicating the previous government processes. Same thing with the clear my record work, it was like the, the first version of, of what people were building and what they would do if they basically hired a, you know, put a, this thing out for procurement would be to replicate the current paper-based process and some vendor would come along and build them this horrible system when in fact, you know, like if you're doing it and going, well, what would be really good for users? It was just like, make this damn record go away. You just build that and then they go, oh, oh, that's how you do it. You know, so you don't have to have permission. So that's a hack I would all ex ex uh, urge all of you to explore. Um, cool. Yeah, Let, yeah. Let's go to the, there was a question in the back. Hi, uh, my name's Sam. I'm here from Tech Impact. Uh, capitalism is, is really good at using technology to concentrate wealth, and it does that largely, at least these days, by minimizing labor costs. Um, and that has an impact on society. And, and That's right. The, the way that we're using um, technology in the nonprofit sector to address you know, clearing uh, criminal records or to simplify the process of filing for bankruptcy, et cetera, that's important and really critical for the people whose lives it impacts. But it seems to me it's not shifting enough the balance to counteract the increasing concentration of wealth. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are, because it sounds like you agree. You're saying that we need to change that conversation. Yeah about how businesses work and how, what they prioritize. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you think the role of the nonprofit sector, end of technology, and maybe the intersection between those two, given where we yeah. are, uh, has, a, you know, what is the role that that has to play in shifting that conversation? Well, 
two thing, uh, two or three things. One, obviously, the nonprofit sector is very big. I mean, for example, there are think tanks that are nonprofits, and there's a really important role to create a set of policy ideas and frameworks that uh, will allow people in government to go, oh, we could do this different thing. And we're seeing this right now in the current you know, uh, political framework where suddenly we're talking about Medicare for all, we're talking about the Green New Deal, uh, and, and then people are going, well, what does that actually mean? And so, you know, and, and you know, there's a policy side to what we do at Code for America too, which is, is like this idea that implementation really matters, you know, in, in, uh, in, in a program. And so there's that policy side is, is one thing that nonprofits provide. Nonprofits also can provide proof of concept of this thing that works, that matters. Um, and, um, and, and, and I think the, the, the third thing that's probably most important is um, to create new channels, I think, for voices to be heard. Um, I heard uh, AOC in one of her talks said something really wonderful. She was quoting another freshman congresswoman, uh, Ayanna Presley, who said, the people who are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. Mm. And uh, I think you know, one of the things that a lot of, of, of nonprofits do is they do get close to the pain. And they become then a channel uh, to people who have power. And that may not be just people in government. I think, you know, like I, I've quoted that, uh, you know, to, to uh, you know, executives at Facebook going, okay, like if you look at your, you know, what went wrong in Myanmar, you know, you were not ob observing that principle. You know, you've got to figure out how you build channels such that the people who are closest to the possible pain are closest to the power. And I think that's something that, you know, uh, a company like Facebook should be figuring out where are all these these nonprofits that are close to the power, uh, I mean, close to the pain, and can you know give them you know connections. Mm. There's a question up here. Yeah. Hi, Tim. My name is Julia Barrero, and I work at Eventbrite. And yeah. building off of Sam's question, I had very similar thoughts, but wanted to tease out a little bit more of the difference between short-term thinking and long-term thinking and how that kind of gets in the way of shifting the algorithms yeah. or thinking about moving people who are closest to the pain yeah. to the power. Yeah, I, I guess I would say, uh, you know, short-termism is, um, is clearly a problem. And, you know, I actually use in my book this great quote from uh, Matt Taibbi, who, who uh, referred to how uh, in, in its early days, Goldman Sachs was what he called long-term greedy, you know, which is like, okay, this thing is going to be really good for us over time. And then they became short-term greedy, mm -hmm. and, and that was the downfall of the company. I do think that, um, though, the, 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 the short-termism versus long-termism easily becomes this sort of technical discussion of how long people should hold stocks. And I think the much bigger discussion is why are we optimizing for uh, sort of the health of financial instruments rather than the health of people. And, the, the long, and, and, and I think the, the whole framing needs to change. And what I've tried to do with the work I've done with kind of like here are the lessons from Google and Facebook and here's how they apply to society is going, we had a different optimization function, uh, for example, in the period after World War II. It was full employment. And people don't remember that. 
and that worked for 30 years, and then it broke down as, as things do because systems need to be continually be updated. We came up with a new optimization function, which was optimized for shareholder value, and that actually, it, it, it broke inflation. Uh, it, it did, in fact, make the economy much more efficient, and then it ran its course over 20, 30 years, and now we need to change it again, and I think we need to be asking ourselves, what will be the optimization function for our society-wide algorithms? And it's just a way of thinking about it and bringing what we've learned in tech to bear on uh, the way we think about these problems in society and then using that technology to actually try to help solve them. Great, thank you. We have time for one last question. Sure. Thank you. Hi, I'm Matt Holford from dosomething.org. My dad, Steve Holford, worked with you in the early 80s uh, when you were a technical yeah. writer. Yeah. And uh, you've seen right. these systems age. Uh -huh. Some of them are still around and some of them get replaced. And one thing that I know has come up in some really big um, civic engagement efforts like automatic voter registration is the, the aging of the underlying systems yeah. the government owns that eventually need, needs to actually work. For instance, um, a driver's license systems need to be able to work with voter registration systems. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you think there are warning signs in those systems that the government owns right now that are hard to build over or that we should be looking for when we're thinking about how do we future-proof these, these efforts that we're working yeah. on? Yeah, I, I think uh, the challenges of the government market are huge. Uh, it, it's, it's such an untapped area. Uh, we need government transformation. Uh, deeply, uh, and I think we could also do government transformation far more cheaply than we're doing the present, but we have to have a clear vision and we have to have courage. So the first thing we need really is a movement that says government matters, you know, as opposed to that government should be drowned in the bathtub. You know, we have to actually believe that this is a form of collective action, a way that we take care of each other. And we then have to say, okay, how do we make it as good as it can be? And bit by bit, it's, you know, there's pieces of it that are happening, uh, but we need a collective will uh, to work together for the good of everyone. And, and I think that's where it starts. It's not really a technical solution. Cool. Thank you, Tim. Right before I came on stage, I was pressing Tim for his perspective on the 2020 election and who are the political leaders who really get this stuff. And I'm gonna walk off with him now and actually press him more to continue to learn. Um, Thank you, everyone, for your attention, your engagement, and, yeah. and thank you, Tim. All right. Thank you. All right. Awesome.